Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, and it says, And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in it. I thank you that even though it cuts, it heals. And God, we don't come here, or I don't come here this morning, I don't think any of us come here this morning, looking for a validation of things that are causing us harm. Neither are we looking to get beat up. But I pray, God, that we would step by step and measure by measure increasingly align ourselves with what you've said and who you are. You are a safe and a perfect God. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts. You would receive your glory and your crown. And I don't know the issues in the hearts of these men and women, but you do. And I pray as they're having conversation with you as I talk, you would heal them, Lord, and stir their hearts with a noble theme. Help me to be able to communicate clearly this big concept. And I pray that it would have more than one aha moments here this morning. So God, take all the glory. Again, we ask that you'd heal our hearts and forgive our sins. And fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we discussed earlier in these studies the nature of the rejoicing that takes place in heaven at the destruction of what the text calls Babylon the Great. And at first, the admonition to rejoice at her destruction, so we know it seems a little bit harsh, at least to me, to rejoice over the destruction of her enemy. And in fact, what the Bible teaches, so we found, it teaches the exact opposite. Psalm chapter, or excuse me, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17, it says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. In fact, we're told to do the exact opposite in the book of Exodus in chapter 23 that we read last week in verse 4. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under his burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. And so the call to rejoice in chapter 18, and then and now here in chapter 19, where we see the people actually rejoicing, our biblical minds are in conflict because that seems to go against every instruction that's given to us within the Word of God itself. But that's where we found that the rejoicing isn't about celebrating harm. It's finding solace in the end of an era that caused such immense pain and suffering for all of mankind. And it was like celebrating the end of World War II It wasn't a celebration over the destruction of the German people, God forbid. It was a celebration of the destruction of a system of Nazism whose philosophies and teachings and principles destroyed literally millions of people. (laughs) And they did such incredible harm. And in this case, the system, Babylon the Great, she's dead. And thus, the people of God are called to rejoice. In fact, all systems that are false always end up leading to death. Did you know that? You can say, well, it works, but where does it lead you? And as such, God is constantly imploring his people to come out from among her. Because if you don't, it leads to death. Look at chapter 18 and verse 4. It says, come out from her, my people, lest you partake in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And the message that God is constantly giving is that he has come to give you, not death, he has come to give you life. 
And that's why Jesus said, I've come to give you life and to give it to the full. And by the way, that's the test of truth. Does this system or does this belief or does this idea or does this practice, whatever you're doing, here's the question. Does this thing that you're choosing to follow, choosing to believe, does it give you life? And some things that we enjoy are like a sugar high. I've got children at home that that if it was up to them, they would eat nothing but Snickers all day. Now, I don't buy these Snickers. I don't buy anything sweet. My mother brings them over. And I said, Mom, please don't buy that. We don't need that. My last dental thing, which was just last a few weeks ago, I took the kids in, zero cavities. Thank you very much. That is a deliberate choice. But some of the things that we believe are like a sugar high. But it doesn't give you life. And John in his first epistle said, He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God abides upon him. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if we'd stop and think about that statement, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there in that statement, Jesus implies that if your truth does not give you life, it's not true truth. Because you can't separate truth from life. And many people believe many things. Some of those things are true. Some of them aren't. Some of the things that they believe in work. Some of them don't. (laughs) However, whether something we believe works or not is not the basis of truth. We're not worshiping at the altar of pragmatism. We don't worship at the altar of, you know, it worked and therefore it's true. Because if we just worship things that worked, why don't we just take steroids? I mean, steroids work. Why don't we just take crystal meth? I mean, you're lagging in energy? Screw the coffee. Get some crystal meth. You are going to be zooming. But we don't worship things just because they work. And you want to know why? Because although they work, they don't give you life. In fact, they give you death. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, they bring death. And so the question is, does the thing that I'm believing in, does it give me life? The Proverbs say, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. And essentially what we find in the Bible is this concept of the doctrines of demons. And the reason they're doctrines of demons isn't because they don't work. They're demonic because they end in death. They end in death. Like crystal meth, it ends in death. And that applies to the spiritual realm as well. But Jesus, he tells us explicitly, I have come to give you something. And you know what it is? It's life. It's life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You can't separate those three concepts. And thus the rejoicing is over a system that is promised to give you life, a system that perhaps in the moment was fun, exciting, a system that made life fun for the moment, but the end thereof was bondage. So we found. So it says in chapter 18, her trade was in the souls of men, their commodity. It ends in violence. She was drunk with the blood of the saints. And even in her own death, because chapter 17 and 18 show us that she actually was killed by the kings of the earth, who she thought she was in love with. And so what do we learn? Nothing good comes out of this system. It's fun for a moment, but as Hebrews says, Moses forsook the pleasures of sin, recognizing they were for a moment. 
nothing good comes. So the rejoicing is from heaven. The rejoicing is not upon earth, clearly, which begs the question whether or not we're in heaven. And from heaven, they see the destruction of the system, and they have seen all the toil likewise of that is caused upon man. They've seen the ruined families when this system, when this belief system is embraced. They've seen the broken hearts. They've seen the tragedy that the system has created from the very beginning of time that promises you this system will give you life, but it's a sugar high. It's crystal meth. It's steroids. And it does. It works. It's a doctrine of demon, though, because it brings death. And the system's effect is that it's kept men not in freedom, but it's actually kept them in bondage and in sin. It's a system that promised life, but only brought life to the, death to this earth. Now, why does God care about the earth? I mean, if, certainly if I was God, I wouldn't give a rip. Don't you think that God is perfectly happy in and of himself? I mean, he's like, oh, but I need the earth to be happy. No, he doesn't. He, he does, he's perfectly happy all by himself. And I sit back and I say, this is completely, everything about God is completely opposite. We were singing the song here this morning, Brandon was, and we were joining him. This says holy, and the idea that he is holy means that he's other. It's the idea in the Bible, he says, my ways are not your ways, they're beyond your figuring out. It's God's way of saying, I am solely and completely different than you. And yet I made you in my image and my likeness. It's a strange thing that's going on here. The angels, the Bible says, are scratching their heads. So why does he care about the earth? The Bible says that he created the earth for his good pleasure. And you say, well, that's not fair. Well, let me ask you, what is fair? Well, I think I should make it for my good pleasure. <laughs> Which one's more fair? The Bible says in Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I love the way the King James says it, because the Bible is written in Greek, New Testament. It's translated into English, so we can say it in different ways in English. It's not a mistranslation. It's just you can say the same thing in different ways if you know anything about language. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 of the King James, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they, were, they are and were created. And I like that translation because it's the exact same thing that Paul tells us in Colossians 1.16, where he says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things were created through him, but they were also created for him. Not you. Not me. And the question comes, am I going to coordinate myself with his system or mine? Now, you might say, well, that sounds kind of selfish. God created all things for himself, and the answer is yes. But it's not selfish for one reason, probably many more, but one that I can think of. And the reason it's not selfish is because God is good. And because he's good, he will only do good. And to create things for himself is to maintain that goodness. In God's goodness, unlike us, he abundantly shares. He shares. And you know, that's completely opposite from man. Man is not inherently good. Now, man can do good. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, evil men can do good things. 
Man can do good, but he's not inherently good. Man, I hate to break it to you, is inherently evil. You know it. I know it. And thus, I appreciate your discipline. But as Jeremiah said, the heart of man, 17.9, is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? And think this through. When man has complete control, use your observations of the world today. When man has complete control, like the ring of power in the Lord of the Rings, he wants to do good, but with that ring of power, he will only do evil. And so the saying goes, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Sometimes you guys wonder, why in the world do I have trials in my life? This is why. (laughs) It keeps you from going down that path. I hate trials. But apparently, ever since God put the thorns in the Garden of Eden, they're apparently necessary. And I hate that. So as opposed to God, and by the way, all the problems I've seen in people that I love, and I truly love them, they're followers of Christ, it's when they chose that they are no longer going to go through trials. They're done fighting, and they just give in, and they say, it's now me time, and every person I've seen do that has brought such ruin and harm into their life as soon as they made that decision. And so as opposed to God, when man gives, gains great power, it's never enough. They always want more. Remember, I quoted you a couple of weeks ago, Rockefeller. He says, how much money is enough? He said, just $1 more. It's never enough. And he becomes corrupt and even more selfish because of the darkness that is in his heart. And that's what we're witnessing in the world scene right now. I don't know if you know that. But in the world scene, the elites, as they call themselves, strange, strange, strange title. The elites are trying to take over the entire world. You say, why? They view this world as their own. It's their world. And you're here eating up all of their food. You're using all of their resources. I mean, it was Rockefeller that changed oil into a fossil fuel. There's no evidences of that oil is fossil fuels. But he named it fossil fuel in order to make it a rare commodity that's running out. And if it's a rare commodity, as opposed to the pricing market of the day, where it was cheap and easy and abundant, if it's a limited quantity, you can increase the price. But here's the problem. Tucker Carlson was just uh, interviewing a, a scientist. He says that one of the moons on, what is it, Saturn, I believe it is, is full of methane. And and fossil fuels. He said, how did the dinosaurs get up there? (laughs) And they view you as using up all of their resources. It's a means to an end. You're occupying their spaces. You're ruining their forests. You're vermin. And what do you do with vermin? Let's see, quote Jolly Prince Charles, What the world needs is a killer virus to wipe out the world's population. And these are the guys that are benevolent towards virus research. Bill Gates has said the exact same thing. Kamala Harris said the exact same thing. Although I don't know that she was aware that she said it. I was just about ready to do a Kamala impersonation. (laughs)
go back to Caddyshack. <laughs> Focus. <laughs> but the view of these people is that you're vermin, we gotta wipe you out. The bioweapon was not COVID-19, it was the vaccine. The Epoch Times is the only legitimate news organization that's reporting on this. And they back it up. They hate you. But this is what man does when he becomes powerful. It's completely opposite of God. Completely opposite. And so it's right that all things were created by him and for him. <laughs> completely opposite of the way we think. But it's not God who's selfish, it's us. The Bible teaches that we are to lose our life in order to find it. Counterintuitive. And thus the Christian becomes a, kind of an enigma, right? It's a person of puzzling character. And the paradoxical message of Christianity is that by losing our life, we gain it. We win. <laughs> in other words, the pathway to true victory and fulfillment involves self-denial, sacrificial love, and aligning ourselves with the purposes of God in our lives. And while I think this is counterintuitive to worldly wisdom, here's the difference. It actually leads to life. The proof is in the pudding. And when we chase after our own desires and ambitions, not that we're masochistic, but we make them a priority, seeking to fulfill our own goals, we may experience a fleeting pleasure. But in the end, we encounter only the emptiness and the spiritual decay as a consequence of the decisions we made. I recall my father's words from years ago about climbing the ladder of success. And he says he remarked that his disappointment when finally reaching the top, he realized it was leaned against the wrong wall. <laughs> and Jesus succinctly captured the essence of worldly pleasure when he spoke of them saying, if you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. That is true of every experience you'll have in this life. If you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. However, true abundance, so I read in the New Testament, awaits those who wholeheartedly surrender. And they seek Christ. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And it's not merely about losing oneself, but about the embracing of the new, the abundant life. You just focus on losing yourself, you're going to lose heart. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the thief only comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And this is the same thing that's echoed in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25, where it echoes the sentiment by saying, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now, when I think about losing my life, the normal response is that it creates a modicum of fear, right? You hear that message and you think, whoa, 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 whoa. If I lose my life, I'm done. But what you do is you give God the benefit of the doubt and say, God, I don't believe you. Help my unbelief. But I'm going to choose to act towards you as though that's true. And as we found in a Roman study, if you commit yourself to the truth, the truth behaves. And so if you think about this, the surrender, though it's fearful and it's scary, we must do it. And therefore, the surrender that we have towards God requires faith in God. If you don't have faith or trust in God, not faith in yourself, 
Not faith in your ability to do something or to claim something. Uh, back 20 years ago in the church, it was have faith in your faith. That is complete nonsense. How can you have faith in faith? Faith isn't an entity in and of itself. Not faith in yourself, not faith in your abilities, but it's, as Jesus said, have faith in God. Now, here's the problem in our world. We have this idea that faith is a magic word. In Christianity, in the occult, anything, it's always like this mysticism. It's like, what is faith? I don't know. It's just believing. Believing what? Faith, you've heard it here, faith is not a magic word. Faith is a word that we use every day in every aspect of our life. It's something all of us are practicing. All of you right now are practicing faith in that chair. And you committed yourself to the chair, believing that it was going to hold you up. Some of you didn't even question it. You just sat down and you're thinking, this chair always holds me up. And if I sit in the chair, I have to have faith in that chair that if I commit my entire body to it, it's going to hold me. And because I have faith in the chair, I act towards that chair with the assumption that the chair is going to do what it promises to do, namely, hold me. We practice faith every day in a whole variety of objects. But hear this, my faith is only as good as the object in which I'm placing my faith. Your faith is only as good as the object in which you're placing your faith. Don't have faith. Don't have faith in faith. Again, that's nonsense. But the question is, what am I? What are you? What are we putting our faith in? And why are we putting our faith in it? Now, you may have great faith in a stupid thing. People do this all the time. But your great faith in a stupid thing doesn't make the stupid thing right. Your faith is only as good as the object that I put my faith in. So if I commit my faith by faith to sitting in a bad chair, it's got broken, it's rotted, it's going to fall apart, it creaks, but I said, I'm going to have great faith in that chair, the chair that I found in the forest. <laughs> it has moss on it, and a squirrel's living underneath it. It looks like a deer has been peeing on it. I have tremendous faith in this chair. The chair doesn't stand when I sit in it because I have faith in it. If you put your faith in that chair, you're a moron. My faith is only as good as the object in which I place my faith. Having faith in a bad chair, great faith in a bad chair, you will still end up falling flat on your bum. So your faith doesn't affect the object in which you're placing your faith. And so if faith is only as good as the object in which I place my faith, likewise, it follows that it doesn't actually matter how much faith I have. Even if I just have, I don't know, just a faith of a mustard seed. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. What do I mean? Follow the example of the chair again. I can have a little bit of faith or a lot of, bit of, a lot of faith. It doesn't matter. But the amount of the faith does not matter. The amount of the faith allows me to enjoy the ride. Let me change the metaphor. Think about it in terms of an airplane. I've flown all over the world. I used to be terrified of flying until I took my son Hudson to Africa with me when he was 12. First day of what seemed like a million years. We were there for nine days. It seemed like a million years. I said, oh God, please forgive me. They're going to kill us. <laughs> it was a weird experience. 
but I was terrified of flying. But I can tell you, when Mission Aviation Fellowship flew into the middle of nowhere on this grass kind of landing, picked us up in this little tiny engine and flew us off over the great African rift through lightning and thunderstorms. We could see below us zebras and elephants and all sorts of animals. Even though lightning was crashing around me, I just didn't care anymore because I survived something that I was convinced was going to kill me. And I survived. And ever since that moment, I've had zero fear of flying. But before that occasion, I find that there's actually different variations of people's faith in flying. There's a guy that has a watermelon-sized faith. He gets upon the plane, and he's just like, hey, this is great. I don't care. It bumps and turbulence. He's like, ah, whatever. It always happens. He has great faith in the airplane. Of course, unless you're Alaska, but anyway. <laughs> but then you got another guy that's sitting next to him in the middle seat, and it's always the middle seat. He's got a grapefruit-sized faith. And he's pretty calm. He sits down, no big deal. The turbulence happens. He's like, well, that's kind of nervous, but I'm not too scared. As long as things are flying great, I'm, I'm smooth, I'm, I'm fine, but then a bump, and it kind of freaks me out. And then you have a guy next to him at the window seat. They're always at the window seat. They're trying to get out. <laughs> he's got a little peanut-sized faith. And he's absolutely terrified. He gets upon the plane. He sits on that window seat, and he's scared to death the entire flight. But we have a problem. Does my faith make that plane fly? No, my faith is only as good as the object in which I placed my faith. In fact, the guy with a peanut-sized faith, he exercised his faith just as much as the guy with a watermelon-sized faith because both of them got on the airplane. And by getting on the airplane, they proved they had a measure of faith. But does the guy with a lot of faith, does he help the airplane fly? When it feels it goes through turbulence, does he pull out his arms and start going, <laughs> start flapping them real fast so he can get, get, the, get the plane up? No, he commits himself by faith to the airplane where the airplane does something for me that I couldn't do for myself. The amount of faith doesn't matter. But the amount of faith, Jesus again said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could move a mountain. That mountain's only going to move if God moves it or the devil moves it. But your faith is in God. And God, if you are determined to do something, all I need is a little bit of faith. I just need to get on the airplane. And even though it's turbulent, I trust that it's going to land where I'm going. The amount of faith doesn't determine anything about the object in which you're placing your faith or the goals of the thing in which you're placing their faith. It does nothing. But the amount of faith does this. It determines the measure of your enjoyment of the ride. And the guy with the peanut-sized faith isn't enjoying himself. The guy with the huge watermelon faith is like, hey, whatever. And I'm somewhere in between. With airplanes, I got the watermelon. But with other things, I've got various degrees. But I have enough faith to get on the airplane. And the amount of faith only allows me to enjoy the ride. And so the only important issue is not how much faith do I have. Faith is a normal word. The only question is, will I express my faith in the right thing? Is the thing in which I'm placing my faith valid? Is it a rotten chair 
or is a steel chair the ones that you're sitting in? And whether you have a little bit of faith or a lot, it doesn't matter. Are you putting your faith, am I putting my faith in the right thing? And if I have a little bit of faith in a great chair, I'm shaking as I squat. I don't know. Every week you come here and you're scared. I don't know if this thing's going to hold me. But I have a little bit of faith in a massive chair made out of steel. The chair doesn't collapse because my faith wasn't big enough. Did you know that? My faith is only as good as the object in which I place my faith. My faith doesn't create reality. It allows me to engage reality. And the only question is, where am I placing my faith? Not how much do I have. Where am I placing it? Where am I placing my faith? And my faith allows me to engage the object in which I am placing my faith. Does that make sense? Some of you say yes. Others of you are thinking about the football game. (laughs) I have faith the 49ers are going to (laughs) win. Or something like that. I don't care. I haven't watched woke football for the last 20 years. And so Jesus said, have faith in God. Question, is that a a valid place in which to place your faith? Even if you have a little bit of faith? You may be shaking as you try to place your faith in God, but act towards God as though it's true that he actually is God. Draw near to God. And watch this. He'll draw near to you. Tell him your concerns. Tell him your problems. Tell him your doubts. Tell him your fears. Tell him, say, God, I don't know if you really exist. But if you truly are God, would you show yourself to me? Would you prove it to me? Ask him if he's real. But act towards him as though it's true that he is God. Place, In other words, place your faith in him and see if the chair stands. Try that with false religion. But see if it stands. And you see, once I realized that everything was created by God and for his glory, not for your pleasure, not for my pleasure, but for his, that takes faith to believe that. I don't naturally do this. I don't believe it. But I choose to believe him. And when I choose to believe him, I commit myself to the truth. And guess what? The truth behaves. And when I do this, when I realize that this world was not created for me, which is the opposite of what Babylon the Great is teaching. This redirects my focus from self-gratification to living in alignment with his purpose. Which doesn't mean that I've given my faith to God, so he's going to do something to me. He's going to send me to Africa. (laughs) Or God forbid, he's going to make you a dentist. Could you imagine that? Ben, now that I've got your life, now you're going to be a dentist. No, not a dentist. All day long, looking in other people's mouths. I can't do that, Lord. And that's the way we think. We think that if I really commit myself to the Lord, then he's going to make me a dentist. (laughs) But we embrace his plan for our lives, as opposed to seeing the world as a means to satiate my selfish desires. We actively participate in his redemptive work. And therein we find profound joy, because now we're serving the creator of the universe. Now the creation is reconciled to the creator, and there's peace within the man. You know the source of unrest? It's the creation. You and I are not reconciled to the creator and his purposes. We are trying to get the benefits from the creator without having to commit to him. That's called harlotry. 
Baby, I just want something from you, but I don't want a relationship to you. And God says, no, baby, you got to put a ring on it. You got to come into covenant with me. You got to put it, you got to put a ring on it, baby. And once you put a ring on it, something changes. I'm talking spiritually, as well as physically in terms of humans. And the result is that you have peace, even within the midst of the storm. I know that I've had my fair share of going through hell. But to quote one person, they said, you're so at peace. Sometimes I'm not at peace. Sometimes I waver in my faith. Anybody here ever have that? But I always rally myself. I always point back. You know, the purpose of the church is so that when we come together, some of us waver in peace. Sometimes we come in with weak knees and shaking once in a while. And the church listens to you. I'm like, okay, okay. You know what, brother? I'm here for you if you need any help. But guess what? You forgot there's a king in heaven. And that is very insulting if you say that as a first cause. But if you listen to the story in a clever way, hopefully, you remind them with wisdom that they can have faith in God. And now there's a reconciliation in the midst of a storm. And then and only then do I truly understand what Psalm 24 says. When the creation has been reconciled to the Creator, then I understand Psalm 24, where it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell within it. Today, the earth is not the Lord's. Today, the earth is in darkness. There's pockets of light, but there's great darkness, and it's getting worse. 2024 is going to be interesting, isn't it? But the Bible points to a future reality where God's sovereignty will be fully realized and recognized by all the creation. And it speaks of the ultimate consummation of God's kingdom where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Lord of creation. And in fact, the prophetic passages throughout the Bible teach this. Isaiah chapter 11, the lion lays down with the lamb. Revelation 21 and 22 describe the future restoration putting things back the way they were intended to be at the beginning, which is the Garden of Eden. It describes a future restoration of the creation where God's original purposes for the earth will be realized again. He gives you a resurrection body because your body will be what he intended it to be, whether you like it or not, and you'll like it. He restores the earth because this earth will be what he intended it to be, whether you like it or not, and you'll like it. And in this restored state, the earth and all of its inhabitants will exist in perfect harmony and alignment with the will of God. Now think this through. God created all things, and if he created all things, he owns all things, right? Genesis 1.26 describes how God granted stewardship of the earth to mankind. He says he makes man his image and in his likeness, and in that condition, when man is in the image and the likeness of God, so that you would look at man and see what God was like, he was a perfect representation of God. Then and only then, he says, I give you dominion over the earth. Man is not operating in dominion over the earth. But when he was imbued with the image keyword, the image, then he was commanded to rule the creation. And when man sinned, he no longer was in the image and the likeness of God. He lost the image. It's interesting because Satan comes along and says, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, you'll be like him. I don't have time to get into the distinctions between the image and the likeness. Theologians debate about that, but let's keep it simple. Man was in the image and the likeness of God. He was already like God. 
but he is also in the image of God. The devil comes along and says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him. And that's true, but I already was like him. The devil lies while he's telling the truth. Did you know this? Because, in fact, what happened when you sinned, you lost the image of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so that no longer do you represent God in the way you behave. Adam represented God perfectly. When he sinned, because God doesn't sin, he misrepresented that image. So when the devil says, sin, and you'll be like him, he already was like him. It's a clever way of saying, but you're going to lose the image. And what happened when man sinned? He lost the image of God. So no longer could men look at you and glorify their Father in heaven. Sin is slandering the name of God. Sin is misrepresenting God in whose image you were made. Now all of us sin. And sometimes the only thing we can do to correct that is to confess it. But man sinned, he was no longer the image of God. And to this, the devil, when he tricked man to sin, brought man under his control. Sin is like turning off the lights, thrusting men into a kingdom of darkness. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16, when you obey someone, you become their slave, whether it's sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So Adam and Eve not only lost the right to rule because they were no longer in the image and the likeness of God, but add to this, they became slaves of the enemy. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, it tells us that it's through our disobedience that the devil seeks to control us. And he makes sin appear to be pleasurable, and indeed it is at first. I mean, I've never been tempted to jump in front of a bus. Well, it's such a temptation. I've been tempted to push somebody else in front of a bus, but I've never been tempted to jump in front of the bus myself. Sin is pleasurable. The Bible teaches this in Hebrews 11. That's what Moses had to forsake, the pleasures of sin. But the devil makes sin appear to be very pleasurable without consequence. And he does this so he can bring us under his control. Ephesians 2 makes this clear. But sin not only keeps us under the devil's control, it not only removes the image of God from our lives so that we're misrepresenting God in the way we behave, but it also, thirdly, it leads to death. And God never intended for you to die. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him, the devil, who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and to free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, most people are terrified of death. That's why they joke about it, or most commonly, they, they ignore it. They busy their entire lives while distracting themselves from the reality of death. Sometimes the reason people kill themselves is so they can control death, so they think. I'm going to kill myself because now, because I feel so vulnerable and scared about it, I'm going to control the moment and the time of it. It's absolute stupidity. But that's the confusion that people live in. But Jesus comes and breaks the fear of death because, and for only one reason, he provides a path to life. Now, how does he provide a path to life? In Andrew Murray's book, The Power of the Blood of Jesus, phenomenal book, by the way, 
He describes how Christ entered into the domain of the devil, which is death, by dying himself. He enters like a Trojan horse. He enters into the enemy's camp. Satan ruled death. But because there was no sin within Christ, even though sin leads to death, but because there was no sin within him, death could not hold him. So he takes the penalty of sin, he absorbs it into himself, but because he himself never sinned, death couldn't hold him, and in so doing, he provides the path of escape. You can tunnel your way out. (laughs) And so he not only absorbed your sin into himself on the cross and put that sin to death when he died, like a cancer that dies when its host is dead, the sin died within Christ. And he not only absorbed your unrighteousness into himself, but he also provided the path of escape from the consequences of your sin, which is death. And when he rose again, and he really did do that, he becomes a forerunner to the path of escape. He escaped because though he took the consequences of your sin into himself, himself, as I said, he absorbed them and died, but because he had no sin, death had no authority over him. He killed the sin, but you can't kill the king. You understand? And thus he becomes a forerunner for us, so that should we have a new body, like unto his own glorious body, a body without sin, which we talked about in previous weeks, there's no sin within the resurrection body, we too, therefore, could not be contained by that same Death. I think it was Phil Robertson, one of his great sermons, says the only way you're getting out of the grave is by Jesus Christ. And if we had a body like unto his own glorious body, the grave couldn't hold us. And so the plan wasn't just to take care of your sins upon the cross. The plan wasn't just to restore the image back into you. The plan wasn't just to build a road out of the dominion of hell, which is death. The plan was to give you a body that could no longer be ruled by sin, which always leads you to death. In the meantime, you have a body with sin. And therefore, the Christian is a good repenter. You're going to have to get comfortable with this. (laughs) And this is the doctrine of the resurrection. And in order to get that body, you have to become part of a new race of mankind. You're either born into the race of Adam, who was a sinner, or you can be born again into the race of the second Adam, The last Adam, which there's nuances in those two terminologies, but keeping it relatively simple, there's Adam and Jesus. And you're either going to be born into Adam and receive what he passed down to you, which was sin, which leads to death, or you'll be born again after the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the second real man that ever lived, because a man is in the image and the likeness of God, according to the Bible. Adam was in the image and the likeness of God. He sinned and lost that image. So what he passed down is the lack of that image because of a consequence of sin. Romans 5 talks about this. But Christ came and he sinned not, so that he could adopt you into his family cleanse you of your sin, impart his spirit to you so that he could live within you. It's a deposit, Ephesians 1.13, guaranteeing what is yet to come 
so that when we die, though we die, John chapter 11, yet shall we live, that when we die, we will rise again. Though my flesh it be destroyed, I, with my eyes I will see God. And in that resurrection body, we become fully realized as the sons of God. You are a son of God, but the creation is still waiting for the full revelation of the sons of God, according to Romans 8. You just have a deposit. And if you're honest, you know exactly that's true. You don't look at yourself and see Jesus. You don't look in the mirror and say, well, I see Jesus today. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> good luck at that one. Like a bar that turns on the lights. <laughs> so that even as Adam passed on his nature to all his children, Jesus would create a new race of mankind, is what theologians call the federal head. And that new race whereby he can pass on his nature to all mankind. The problem, of course, is you have a sin nature within you. The one man, Adam, though, passed on death, but Jesus came, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, as a life-giving spirit. And in order to, part, to, to be part of this new race of man, again, he told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, you must be born again. Nicodemus was confused. He didn't know how this could be. He goes, man, you're a teacher in Israel, and you could have figured this out? And so when he dies upon the cross, he does many things, many things. I can't list them all. I listed some of them. But here's one that we missed. When he dies upon the cross, he fulfills the law. Now, some of you say, well, yeah, I've heard that before. Jesus comes to take the penalty of your sin, wherein he fulfilled the law. Well, that's true. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. When he died upon the cross, what does he say? He says, to telestai, which means what? Paid in full. Well, what was paid in full? We always make the assumption of one thing, but it doesn't say. It just says paid in full. But let me think this through. If something was paid in full, it assumes that something prior to this state was not being paid, right? Or put it another way, something that was not paid for was stolen, right? So he comes on the cross and said, now I paid the price. But if it's something that was stolen, he pays for something upon the cross that was stolen. What in the world was stolen? You have to view salvation as a restoration of all things. If you don't understand salvation in terms of God putting things back to the way he created it at the beginning, you will be filled with mysticism and nonsense. You won't understand the gospel. You'll hear this kind of like, Jesus forgives me of my sins and I go to heaven. That's true. But you'll be completely without knowledge. Go back to the Garden of Eden. What did God say in the Garden of Eden? He says, don't eat from that tree. What did man do? He stole something and ate from the tree. And so when Jesus comes, the reason he dies upon a cross or a tree is because in the very beginning, man stole from the tree. And God puts back on the tree for you and for me to undo everything that was done at the beginning. His hands were pierced because our hands stole from the tree. His feet were pierced because he will crush the serpent's head beneath his feet. His side was pierced because Eve came from Adam's rib. And so he's making atonement for Eve the one who led her husband into temptation. 
A crown of thorns was placed upon his head. Why? The curse of the creation is that the ground would produce thorns and thistles. He's literally taking the curse upon himself and reversing it. You have to understand this in terms of the beginning. And he took the penalty of sin. He paid for what was stolen. But because he himself was not a sinner, the grave couldn't hold him. He broke the stone tablet from the Chronicles of Narnia. He broke the stone tablet and conquered the grave. And in this regard, he's what the New Testament calls our forerunner. That is, he goes ahead of us. And he not only makes for us a path to go to heaven, but when he rises from the dead as the first fruits from the dead is what the New Testament speaks of, when it calls him the first fruits, it implies that there's more fruit yet to come. And you know what the more fruit is coming is? It's you and me in Christ Jesus. It's the biblical way of saying that we too shall rise from the dead and have a body like unto his own glorious body, a body without sin, a body that'll never, ever die again or ever be enslaved to sin again or will ever misrepresent God again. It's pretty good news. <laughs> but in the meantime... <laughs> In Ephesians 1, by the way, it says that he gives his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So you have in part a measure, but you do not have the full. But the measure that you have is counteracting the sin nature that's still within you and will always be in you until the day you die, so you have to be a good repenter. But in the meantime, we have these bodies, sins living within them. We have a deposit of a spirit whereby we're guaranteeing our inheritance, but because sin lives within us, we have to smack it on its head once in a while, knock it on its head. Sometimes we have to confess our sins to others when it involves them, not when it doesn't. Don't go to the person that you hate in your heart and say, would you please forgive me? I've hated you in my heart for years. And they're like, what the heck? I thought we were friends. Well, I'm just confessing my sins. No, you, if they don't know about it, tell the Lord and leave it there. <laughs> Jeez, sometimes we've got to think these things through, people. It doesn't help them. Maybe it makes you feel better, but man, that, that's brutal. And so when Jesus said you have to be born again, he was saying that a new race of mankind must be entered into. In fact, something else that's going to blow your mind in John 3, 16, most quoted verse in history. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, many people have thought that word perish means going to hell that it refers to your soul, that your soul will not go in hell. No, that's true. That is not what the word means. If you go through the New Testament and look at that word perish, it consistently is in reference to something physical. He changes in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the body from perishable to imperishable. What was perishable? Your soul? No, the body. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Over and again in the New Testament, the perishable is a reference to the physical body that you have. John 3.16 is not a promise that you go to heaven when you die. That's true. It's a promise that though my flesh should be destroyed, with my eyes I will see God. It's a promise of the resurrection. Your body will not perish. And your only hope of getting out of the grave is Jesus Christ. Your only hope of getting out of the grave is your forerunner, Jesus Christ, who went before you and conquered the grave. It's Job again who says, I will see God with my very eyes. I think it's in chapter 1925, I think it is. Or 2519, one of the two. <laughs> and so the gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins. It's that he rose again, providing a path divine. We will never become God. 
He gave his life so that we could live with him forever and be like him and no longer misrepresent him. In other words, God's plan of redemption includes the restoration of your body to the intention that he had at the beginning. I was reading yesterday about alcohol and how it can inhibit collagen. You know, women complain about the, the breaking, particularly it's a problem for women, the breaking down of the skin and all that kind of stuff. And it's the problem with this collagen. And collagen, you know, it's just part of the aging process. I think it's good when a woman can embrace aging naturally. I mean, it's part of the natural process. It's not disgusting. I mean, if you're 13 and, you know, you look like that, that would be kind of weird, but the Benjamin Button's thing, but, but, it's, like, but, if, but it's a natural process, and that's, it's not gross in that sense. But they're talking about alcohol can actually inhibit the collagen and even the minerals in your body from being absorbed, and it can prevent it from going to the face and the skin. And I thought to myself, um, what a picture. Because alcohol, even though I'm not against alcohol, I'm against alcoholism, alcohol at the end of the day is a poison. And we take poison in our body and it ages us. It prevents us from having this life. It's just a picture. By the way, as an aside, if you drink, drink in moderation. Don't get drunk. But Jesus came to give you life. Now get this. The reason he restores your body is to restore the earth. We always think that's the end of it. I just, it used to be the end of it is just give me a clear conscience. I did these bad things, give me a clear conscience. Well, that's part of it, but that's not the end of it. And then it's like, well, clear my conscience, but I want to go to heaven when I die. Well, that's part of it, but that's not the purpose. Well, give me a clear conscience. I want to go to heaven when I die, but also restore this body because this body of sin, I need a body that will be holy like unto his own glorious body. Hey, that's, that's good, but that's not the purpose. That's a means to an end. And according to the restoration, which is going to be of all things, as the Bible says, you need a new body in order to restore the earth. Before he restores the earth, he must restore mankind to what mankind was back at the beginning, in the image and in the likeness of God. Remember at the beginning, we talked about Genesis in chapter 1. It was man who was in the image and the likeness of God that had dominion on the earth. Man lost that image, and guess what? He lost the dominion, and the devil took it over. And he makes man in his image and in the likeness of God again, and then and only then, as he says in Revelation, I will give you then and only then the right to rule and to reign with Christ. But not until then. Until then, we're all going to lust after the ring of power because we were created to have dominion. But I have a sin nature, and I no longer have the image. A deposit of the image of Christ is put back into me, guaranteeing what's yet to come. But I do not yet have the right to rule and to reign with Christ until something else takes place. And if the qualifications for ruling the earth is that man is in the image and the likeness of God, man must be put back into that condition. And in order for man to rule, he must not be a slave. Would you agree? What does sin do to you? It makes you a slave. In order for man to rule, he must not live in fear. What does sin lead to? Death. Sin enslaves you. Sin leads you rightly into the fear of death. And God's answer is to free you from the dominion of sin 
and to promise you eternal life in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I would grant that there's a difference between everlasting life and eternal life. I don't have time to explain it, but there is a slight difference. But the eternal life that we receive is the life of God. Eternal life has no beginning and no end. When I receive the life of God that has no beginning and no end, it's not my life, it's his life, he then enters into me who is temporal. And at that point that the eternal life enters into me, from that point on, I have everlasting life. But I never had eternal life. Eternal life is the life of God. God enters into man, and once he enters into man, I have life everlasting. Now get this. When we're born again, the life of Jesus Christ literally enters inside of you. And every indication in the New Testament, it's like a baby growing inside of its mother's womb. He's growing. It's not the full thing yet. In fact, a full-grown male inside of your belly would not do you well. <laughs> but there's something being birthed. Something's being created. It's a process. And that life not only ensures that you're going to live forever, because it's eternal life, as Jesus said, Though he die, yet shall he live. But that life that enters you is also replacing what was stolen from you at the beginning. What was stolen from you and me at the beginning? The image of God. But this time, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to put back the image in him by him. He puts the image back into you in a way that it can never be taken again. Now, what doesn't change? What can never be taken again? You change, I change, other people change. What can never change? What is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore? The life of God. And the very thing that was stolen from me was the image of God. So that I misrepresent God when people look at me. And God's plan is to restore back that image, but this time it's not contingent on you, it's contingent on him. What do I mean? Man had fallen short of the glory of God and no longer represented him accurately. So Jesus comes to live within you. And you know what Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says? It says, Christ, who is the image, keyword, Christ, who is the image of what? The invisible God. The very thing you and I lost at the beginning is the very thing that he presents and keeps so that forevermore, being found in him, I shall never lose that image. But I have a sin nature. And the motivation to confess that sin, to not just cleanse me, but to now accurately represent the one in whom I claim to be, becomes a powerful driving force in my life. Pride goes away. And so the very thing that you and I lost through sin, in order for God to restore the creation, he has to restore man. And when man is restored back to the image and the likeness of God, then and only then can men rule the creation again. That's what he says in Romans 8 verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You say, wait a second here, I thought I already was a son of God. Mm-hmm. You are, but you're not. You are in part. You have a deposit, but be honest. No one's looking at you and saying, that is the Almighty. <laughs> he looks just like his father. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the Bible says the creation is actually longing for sons of God to be. Who are the sons of God? They're in the image and the likeness of God. And the creation is yearning for the sons of God to be what they're intended to be fully so that the earth could be put back together again the way God intended it to be at the beginning. Remember the Chronicles of Narnia? The whole objective was to get the daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam back on the throne, and that's how they eliminated the dominion of the white witch. That's the whole objective. Get them restored to their dignity so that in their dignity they can rule the creation again. And you know what they called Edmund? So interesting. They called him Edmund the Just. Who was the one kid that was not just? Who was the one kid that did wrong but acknowledged it and repented? The very thing that he did that disqualified him became the basis of God replacing that heir with his very nature so his very weakness became his greatest strength. He's Edmund the just. Does that just... And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, he talks about this restoration of the earth. Again, there's nuances in this that I don't have time to discuss, but he says, But in keeping with the promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Isaiah 65, 17, See, I created new heavens and a new earth. The former things are not remembered, nor will it come to mind. And so Revelation 19, as we've been reading here this morning, it opens with the rejoicing because the system that has destroyed and thwarted God's purposes for this earth and mankind is finally destroyed. That's the first order of business. But secondly, in order to restore the earth, he must restore mankind, who he and his sovereignty has chosen, to rule the earth. He restores mankind... So we find in the greater New Testament, he restores mankind at the rapture. The rapture and the resurrection cannot be separated. And that's a whole other discussion. But when man is restored back fully into the image and the likeness of God, then and only then God restores the earth. Which is another great proof, by the way, that the rapture has to happen before this. And thus when heaven rejoices because the evil system is removed, and can no longer corrupt mankind, it also rejoices because now that the system is removed, the king of kings can come and reclaim his land. He created this land, the land that he gave to man, but man lost his right to rule it when he sinned. The devil murdered him essentially spiritually and then stole his goods. He stole it from man by keeping man and continually to keep man in bondage to sin. Like Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's locked up in the cage of the white witch eating moldy bread and water. And that same man is living in fear of death. That man can't rule and reign. And so Christ comes and restores that man back to the dignity through the gospel. And when Jesus comes, he takes away the sins of man prior. He provides a path of life by rising from the dead himself. And then he enters back into the man by becoming the, the image within the man that man lost at the beginning. And now restored back into the image and the likeness of God, man can once again rule and reign, but this time, as the New Testament says, with Christ. With Christ. And thus man now restored fully at the resurrection 
that takes place at the rapture, with man fully restored, Jesus can now come back and claim the land that was his at the very beginning. It was created for his good pleasure. He made the earth. He gave the earth. He redeemed the earth and set things right again. And that's what's taking place in Revelation 19 and we'll see in future studies and weeks. And this is the gospel, the full gospel. I see these signs before. We preach the full gospel here. And usually what it means is they not only took about the good things that you're going to go to heaven, but also means the bad things. You're a sinner. So we preach the full gospel. Well, that's true. That is not the full gospel. This, what I gave you this morning, is a glimpse, a glimpse of the full gospel. So much so that Peter says the angels are looking at this and they're scratching their heads and going, what the heck? (laughs) But he's given us a mystery. And in the New Testament, the mystery is something that used to be hidden, but is now revealed to the church. And these concepts, though they sound profound, they're not. It's just that kind of we're untaught. But you enter into faith, and God will begin a process of making this creation not a dull and a drab place. Through the midst of trial and pain, you'll find yourself in a battle that is the most mighty, glorious battle that has ever existed in human history. And on top of that, your team wins in the end. (laughs) Pretty good deal. So God, I thank you for the grace. I thank you for the patience of these people. I know these concepts are long and hard to listen to. And some of this undoubtedly flies over the heads of people, not because they're stupid. It's just because it's so much information. And it's not meant to overwhelm, but it is meant to give an overall understanding so that we can think rightly. And Lord, I pray that you'd help these people this week as they live And especially this year that's coming up that is promising, increasingly it seems, to be a very evil year. I ask God in the name of Jesus that we would be unmoved. That we would stand in the grace that we have. We would act as though it's true that you are God. So that other people would look at us and say, you're acting different. Not because we're trying to act different. Keep us from hypocrisy. But that we're choosing to look at you first. We're not trying to act different. That's what a Pharisee does. We're trying to look at Christ, and as we look to Christ, we we act different. Don't get the cart before the horse. So I pray, God, that we would put things right in our lives. We lift our eyes up to you whose throne is in the heavens. We would not be judgmental to our, our loved ones that don't know you. Our hearts would break for them, and let us be witnesses of your kingdom. We don't judge anyone. We don't look down on anyone. I'm not better than anyone on this earth. It's by grace that I've been saved and that by faith so that nobody can boast. There's no boasting in your kingdom, Lord. And I pray, God, that you'd use our lives in the meantime, which time is short, to bring our friends and loved ones and even people we don't know into the glorious gospel of the kingdom of light. We pray that all glory would be yours. You'd heal our hearts and forgive our sins. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.